Welcome to the Next Level American Dream podcast, brought to you by Thompson Multifamily Group. Your hosts, Abigail and Sean, will discuss how you can take your American dream to the next level through real estate investing, business practices, and personal development. Join us as we share our experiences as a father-daughter duo who are trying to accomplish their goal of financial freedom. We hope you learn more about how to define and achieve your American dream. Here's another episode of Next Level American Dream. Welcome to the Next Level American Dream podcast. We have an incredible guest for you today, but first, please make sure you have subscribed if you have not already. We also love getting your feedback through likes, comments, ratings, and reviews. Today, Sean has a conversation with Michael Becker. Michael is a Dallas native and started his career as a banker, then moved to multifamily. In just eight years, he's amassed hundreds of doors. Today, he shares how his business model really hasn't changed that much from $4 million deals to $100 million deals and some of his best business practices that have remained true the whole time. If you found any value from today's episode, then please share it with a friend and help us grow. For more information on our sponsor, visit ThompsonMultifamilyGroup.com to start taking your American dream to the next level through passive investing. Hi, Michael. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, appreciate you having me on. Let's start by uh, just telling people a little bit about where you got started and how you kind of got into multifamily. Yeah, you know, I'm Michael Becker. I live in Dallas, Texas. Grew up in the uh, the Dallas area, and uh, you didn't really kind of come from come from a lot of means. Pretty pretty solid middle class working family. You know, my father fixed appliances for a living. My mother was a school secretary. So, you know, kind of kind of had a story similar to a lot of people where you kind of you know go to go to school and you know get out, get a job, and you know, so really kind of got instilled in, into me as a young age to really just kind of you know live below my means and save money. And so I did that for, you know, many years and, you know, coming out of college, getting into the banking business. I was actually a teller in college and kind of worked my way through college and went to night school as a teller, new, new accounts and out of college, got into the credit department at a bank. So I was underwriting commercial real estate loans and uh, did that for a few years and then transitioned to the, uh, the production side. And so, you know, I was originating loans on, you know, all the major income producing uh, commercial real estate classes like office, industrial retail. And then, you know, the Great Recession happened in uh, 2008. So I'm, I'm in my early 40s. And so I was kind of in my, my early 30s in when I, when I kind of went down and went from, uh, you know, loaning money to uh, doing problem loan workout. And so we did, uh, you know, a whole lot of uh, problem loan workout for about a year and a half, two years and kind of coming out of the Great Recession. You realize the only thing that was really kind of working from a, from a lending standpoint in commercial real estate was multifamily. So I kind of really pivoted and focused uh, exclusively on multifamily lending. And uh, kind of through that process, just kind of realized I was on the wrong side of all these deals. You know, it's kind of better be the borrower than a lender. So I started out like a lot of people in 2000, it was either 10 or 11. I think it was early 2011. We ended up buying my first uh, investment property, which was a three bed, two bath house in Mesquite, Texas. I think I paid about $75,000 or something like that for this three bed, two bath house. I spent maybe $15,000 renovating it. So I was all in for around 90,000 and rented it out for like 1100 bucks a month. And I kind of produced uh, you know, four or 500 bucks in positive cash flow. So then I repeated that 16 times, I think. I think I had 16 rent houses. And then I realized that wasn't very scalable. And then I'm kind of reflecting the all day, every day, what I'm doing at the, at the bank. And then just kind of realized I wasn't utilizing everything I had at my resource, all the resources and knowledge and relationships that I had at my my fingertips. 
So I uh, decided to transition. So we bought our first uh, multifamily property in 2013. It's a 120 unit deal in Garland, Texas. So suburb of Dallas. I think we paid around 3.85 million if I remember right. So, uh, you know, 30 ish a door if I do that math right. And, uh, you know, we yeah. owned that for a few years, sold it for, I think, 55,000 a door. It's probably worth 110 or 120,000 a door or something like that today. Yeah. And uh, so over the last, uh, you know, guess, guess not, it's our ninth year of uh, being multifamily owners now. Uh, we've done maybe 13-ish thousand units, give or take. We'll have, we have about 7,500 units in the portfolio. It's worth about a billion six. So we've sold maybe 5,000 units, refinanced a whole bunch more out, owned about, about a billion six, about 7,500 units today. So it's uh, amazing to think about a decade ago, I didn't own anything and now we own uh, now we own a whole bunch of stuff. So it's kind of kind of been a, a, a fun ride. That is amazing. Yeah, that's that's yeah, I, I thought you've been doing this a lot longer, given what the success that you've had, actually. That's kind of inspiring that you've done this so rapidly and had the ability to do that. And I've had several people on the on the show that you know are, are successful and things like that. But I want to talk to you, if I can, about where you're kind of at today and and some of the things you're seeing at, at the level that you're at now <clears throat> that you may not have you know, noticed when you were just getting started. Sure. So let's talk about, was there a point in your business during that growth time that you noticed a change in how you operate? Is there, is there like a, a unit count or a, a period in your business where you said, Oh, I, I've got to, I've got to scale this up or I've got to change the way I do things. I've got to add employees. I've got to, I've got to look at my business differently. Cause you yeah, went essentially you know, from we, investing uh, to, to a business really, right? Yeah. We started out, it was my, I have a business partner. So my partner, Sean and I, and then we had one employee when we started, which was like kind of how we got, got going. So he was kind of like an analyst slash transaction coordinator, kind of, but we all were a little jacks of all trades. So, you know, we started, we we're just kind of, you know, a couple of guys, three or three guys out there doing some deals. And so we ended up doing, I want to say around eight transactions. We were probably averaging 200 units. We we're probably around 16 or 1700 units, give or take, before we kind of realized, man, this is a lot of work and we got right. all these deals and all this stuff to kind of manage. And so we decided we needed to kind of start layering in some additional employees. So we probably, probably honestly waited a little too long to start trying to scale up and we're kind of pulling our hair out. And so we started with some administrative. That was kind of the first thing we did, trying to get a bunch of 10 or, you know, 10 or $12 hour tasks that, you know, off my plate and onto somebody else's plate. And then, uh, and then from there we hired Jennifer, who's now, who now is a principal of our company after, you know, several years of working for us. And then Jennifer kind of came in, uh, she had an IT project management background. She came in, kind of systematized everything. We had no systems, no organization, oh and we were kind of, you, you know, everything's kind of disorganized, thrown everywhere. We were just so busy running, doing deals that we didn't really have systems in place to make make things easier. So, you know, everything was a little bit harder. So then we kind of, you know, step-by-step step just started systematizing, systematizing our business. And then from there, we kind of built out the administrative team, got some asset management help, got some accounting help in, in-house, you know, really got some marketing help here recently. So just started kind of you know, step-by-step step started finding some of the deficiencies that we have within our organization and trying to find a resource, whether it's technology or whether it's human capital, whatever it is, and uh, and put it in place. And it's been kind of an incremental thing. And that's the one thing that, you know, I, I no one's really born knowing how to run a business, right? And I certainly, I went to business school and was a banker, but I didn't really actually know how to run a company and do all this stuff until you kind of get thrown in the fire and make a few little minor mistakes along the way. And then, 
figure out that, Hey, that's a list of stuff we don't want to ever do again. We need to, we need to find a way to not do that mistake again. And, and that's kind of really kind of how we've evolved over the last years. And a lot of it's not, you know, really wish it was greater planning and, you know, more forth, you know, foresight and thought behind it, but we kind of just got in there and figured it out along the way, to be honest with you. Well, you went, you got to eight properties before you started to really staff up. That's quite a lot, actually. I yeah. can imagine that you, you you had to rely heavily on your third party management and a lot of other things to kind of keep that stuff going. And I, and I, I guess you guys had more systems. I, I, I couldn't imagine running eight properties with, with just, <laughs> just running a gun in like that, but uh, that's good. So after about eight properties, you started to staff up. Are you seeing in your transition? Cause you're, you're up to what you said, 7,500 now. Yeah. About, are you, are you, about our portfolio now. Yeah. Are you starting to see a transition now to where you're having to start to think, think of your business a little bit differently again? Yeah, you know, we continually to evolve as as we go. So, you know, we're, we've always used third-party management. So we've chosen not to take that in-house, you know, no right or wrong, I don't think, but it's kind of what was worked for us. I mean, if we had a management house, we'd probably instead of having, there's there's uh, 12 of us in our company, my partner and I and 10 employees right now. And uh, if there were, we were fully vertically integrated with property management house, we'd probably be 250 employees or something like right, that, you know, right. with, with a lot more headaches and accounting and HR and bunch of stuff like that. So utilizing third-party management's helped kind of minimize a lot of that for us. You know, again, no right or wrong. It's just kind of what's, what's worked for us. And uh, you know what? We've kind of transitioned, which we haven't talked about. When we first started out, we did a lot of workforce housing. So, you know, I think in Texas, where, where, where we focus on was a lot of, you know, 60s and 70s vintage, you know, kind of year construction. That's kind of what we bought transition to kind of more B-class, kind of 80s and 90s, kind of for year construction. And now what we own is generally kind of what I call 8A minus. So, you know, generally year 2000 or newer, 20 years or younger, you know, mainly a lot of the stuff we've been buying is kind of brand new stuff actually last, you know, maybe one or two years old. So that's been kind of a transition and then, you know, kind of layering an asset management help and then getting assistance for the asset manager to make sure he's on top of, you know, all the, the rents and, and capital improvement projects we might have going on and, you know, property tax protesting and city stuff and, you know, whatever, whatever comes at you on a day to day to kind of scale that out. And then on the administrative side, we were apartment syndicators. So we haven't really taken private equity. So we, we, you know, instead of getting a single check from one investor, we tend to get a hundred or 200 checks, you know, a hundred thousand on time from a bunch of, you know, high net worth kind of regular, regular folk, probably pretty similar to what, what you do. And that's great. And there's a lot of advantages to that, but there's a lot, some, some of the, nothing's free and the cost we pay is a lot of administrative nightmares, right? You know, you have your, your, your investor, they get divorced or they move or they change their bank account or, you know, you gotta do, I think we're gonna do 1700 or so, maybe a little bit more K1s this year. So we got to get all those out by the end of February or your, your investors start complaining to you, like, where's my K1? So right, yeah. how do you manage all that in a 30 day, 30 to 40 day window and get all that efficiently build out systems, things like that. So, you know, just a lot of that is just kind of, you know, getting something that comes at you and it's trying to build out a system either through technology or hiring some people and making sure we're extremely organized and get very prepared ahead of time. So you'll be working on our K1s for, you know, you know, we start working on that around November to get ready to make all these out by February. And then or if you take a self-directed IRA money, you got to do fair market value forms. And we have three, 400 of those we got to get out by uh, January 15th. So, you know, you got to, you just got to, got to be organized. And that, that's a lot of what we've uh, cho- uh, been successful in implementing. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I want to kind of rewind a little bit. <clears throat> so what do you think? So you, you, you've had a pretty smooth trajectory, it seems like of growth. 
throughout your, your career in multifamily, what do you think is the thing or, or one or two things maybe that uh, were made the big difference for you as you were trying to transition or, or getting started and then moving, moving up? What, what, what do you think your critical success factors were in that? Is it broker relationships? Is it funding? What do you think was, was really critical? Yeah. I mean, you know, to be successful being an apartment syndicator or, or, you know, an apartment operator like, like myself, you know, the, the two most critical things you need to do, the highest value tasks you need to do, or you got to find deals and find money, right? So you got to, you know, source equity, whether that's a hundred thousand at a time, like, like I do, or, you know, getting, you know, institutional kind of relationships with private equity firms, you know, that that's one aspect of it. That's, you know, usually about a third of the money, about two thirds of the money comes from your, your banking relationships and making sure you have, uh, you know, good, strong banking relationships, you get the right type of debt for that fit the projects that you're trying to doing. So we spend a lot of time on that. And then we spend a lot of time on, on brokers, right? So broker relationships, brokers control the majority of the deals, whether they're on market or off market, the brokers kind of control these deals. So we're constantly in front of those guys, you know, we're recording this at the beginning of uh, 2022. I'm just getting ready. Last two days, I've been spending all my time setting up meetings for NMHC, the National Multi-Housing Council meeting in Orlando. That's coming up here in the very near future. And so just trying to make sure that, you know, that's a, a conference where virtually all the brokers across the country go uh, and all the larger owners and uh, a lot of the lenders and equity partners, et cetera. They all, they all go in one place. There'll be 12, 13,000 people all at this one conference. And so we're going to spend a bunch of time doing meetings and going to events that evening and just trying to figure out if we can't source some something out of there, whether it's, you know, an equity source, a loan, a lender, or, you know, preferably a deal from, from a broker that has a deal out. Right, right. So that's what we're spending a bunch of time on. So I'm constantly getting myself in front of these brokers, whether it's by, by the phone or going to a meeting or touring deals or going to conferences. So that's what we spend a lot of time on. As far as the growth and our trajectory, I mean, I think a lot of it is simply us making a conscious decision to you know continue to grow we set out annual goals every year we're always kind of pushing ourselves slightly past our comfort zone so i remember the first year we did was around four million bucks then you know we quickly got to about an eight million dollar deal and it was uncomfortable and then we got to a you know 15 million dollar deal and a 20 or 25 million dollar deal and you know, this, this last year, we we did a two-property portfolio for $110 million or something like that, right? And so now I need to be able to push myself. I know I can do that. So that probably means I can do $130 or $150 million deal. And that's kind of what the what the goal is going into uh, 2022, which is constantly kind of take incremental steps slightly past my comfort zone and uh, continue to push forward and, and not settle for stuff less. So that's really kind of what we focus on. And that's kind of what's been helpful for us to, to, you know, kind of grow. And as successful as we've been, I can point you to, you know, a dozen other guys that I know personally that have been more successful than me that, you know, that we're able to grow a little bit quicker, a little bit faster in their, their own way. So there's always uh, someone doing more, bigger, better, faster than what you're doing. So don't, I, I try not to get down on myself when, you know, you see someone being uh, maybe a little bit, accomplishing something that I want to accomplish a little bit faster than I have. But, you know, we're just continually uh, growing and pushing ourselves forward. So it sounds like you're going through the same, the same pains you had early on. You're, you still have today. It's just, it's just a matter of, of you, you're doing much larger deals. So you're probably still sweating the raise every time. You're still sweating the closing. You're still kind of, you're still kind of going through that the stressor, you know, of, of getting the deal closed. But it's it's a hundred hundred million dollars instead of four million dollars. Uh, yes, to a certain extent, but I have this history of all these deals that we've been successful doing, 
that I have this uh, innate confidence in myself and our abilities to actually solve whatever problems come at us. Where right. when you're starting out, you don't have that kind of reference of a successful track record to point to. So you you have all this fear and doubt that uh, you're, un- you're unsure if you can overcome. Where now I'm pretty sure we're going to overcome whatever comes at us. And uh, we have so far to date. But yeah, I mean, we had we had a deal that got a little, you know, some deals go easy and some deals don't go easy. We had you know three deals that closed right before the end of the year. And we had to have one close that kind of was a domino for these other ones. And that was a hard one. And we just had to, you know, just buckle down and grind it out. And it was, you know, a little stressful there for a little while. And, yeah. you know, kind of relying on on some third party to do something that you don't have control over. And that's kind of holding up everything. And, and you know, so you just had to kind of work through it. But, you know, I figured at the end of the day, what, whatever it was, we're going to figure out one way or another. And, uh, you know, it all, it all kind of worked out. But, yeah, we still sometimes we still sweat it. It's not nearly as much as what we used to, but, you know, as you continue to grow and scale up, I mean, you know, these, these checks get real, real big <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's real money that, that you're going to lose at the end of the day. If you, you don't do what you say you're going to do. So I'm just going to rewind a little bit. I, I asked you a question in there, but so you, so from the beginning to where you are now, I think the two critical things is that you, I guess really it's mostly one critical thing is that you've, you've solidified the relationships necessary for deal finding and then for funding, both on the yep. banking side and on, on, on the equity side. So just maintaining a consistency with reaching out to those people that have deals and, and getting in front of those people and, and getting those opportunities sent your way. And then also, you know, making sure that people that are funding your deals are understanding your business and you're interacting with them. So that's really kind of been that's what it sounded like what you said. That's kind of been the, the most the the most beneficial thing in your business that's helped you yeah. kind of consistently grow, right? It's the lifeblood of your business. If anyone that does what I do for a living, that's the lifeblood of your business. So you got to find deals and find money. And fortunately, the the more you do, the easier that gets, you know, right. it's a completely unfair business. You know, a lot of this is who you know, what you know, what chips you can trade. The, the, the guy who's done a hundred deals has a very distinct advantage over the guy who's done one or two deals. You know, I mean, the, the deals that come my way, I mean, I don't get questioned anymore when we say we can do something. People assume I can do what I say I'm going to do because I have a hundred instances of me actually doing what I, I said I was going to do. So, you know, people don't question me where my equity is going to come from or can I qualify for a mortgage when you're starting out. That's, you know, those are things that right. you got to you got to be able to communicate effectively to get because you don't have this long track record of all these deals you can point to. You got to be, you know, no one believes you until you actually do it, right? So until right. you, and the more you do it, the easier it's to believe. And then when you start returning, going full cycle on these deals and returning capital, your investors have a lot more confidence in you than they did the the first, the first time they invested with you. They have a lot more confidence on the 10th or 20th time they give you a give you some money and they tend to give you more money because you've returned capital with, with, uh, you know, some appreciation with it as well. And then they start referring all their friends and, you know, then kind of start snowballing from, from there. So, you know, I, if I do nothing every week, we get, you know, three to five new investors at my, my database. If I just do absolutely nothing, you know, and just kind of right. organically grows and some of those people convert and some of them don't, but it's kind of a numbers game is gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And, uh, you know, sometimes people have things going on that maybe a normal investor would invest in every deal, but the daughter got married and they had to pay for a wedding or, you know, what, whatever happened. So you're always having to get a, a further and ever growing database to make sure that you have, uh, you know, the funding available to, to close the deal on time because we're putting up real non-refundable earnest money and pursuit costs saying that we're going to do what we're going to do. So that's, you know, something that we, we spend, you know, uh, consistent effort focusing on expanding the, the investor database as well. 
Yeah, that success sort of breeds more success. Yep. <clears throat> well, let's talk about one of the things that you wish you had known getting started to, that you know, you know today that you didn't know back then. What is there? Is there like one like, like, man, I wish I had started here. I wish I'd known this. Yeah, uh, I wish our new cap rates were going to compress by four or 500 basis points. <laughs> you know, we started buying deals at eight, eight, eight and a half caps and sold them when they hit six caps, didn't know they were going to go to fours. But I know in all seriousness, you know, I think that uh, we haven't made any fatal or, or critical mistakes during our career. You know, one, I think we've been, we're, you know, I mentioned my background was banking. I was a Grim Reaper, you know, I guess, what is that, 13 years ago, 12, 13 years ago, I was a Grim Reaper during the Great Recession. Took a lot of those principles, applied them to our business. So we've always been pretty conservative in the way we structure and the types of deals that we go after. So we never really made any critical mistakes. But the one mistake we had made multiple times, which cost us literally tens and tens of millions of dollars, is we kind of mismatched a little bit the, the loan type with the business plan. Meaning we started out, we pretty much exclusively did, you know, Fannie Mae 10-year fixed rate money. And, you know, we started buying deals, like I said, 2013 and interest rates were extremely low around 5%. And uh, the market started loosening up and we get a you know, whole year of interest only. And it was great compared to a couple of years prior. So we did a bunch of fixed rate money and we thought that these loans that we, we took, they're all assumable. We thought that when we would sell these deals that the, you know, being a below market interest rate at the times, we thought rates were going to go up, that'd be accretive to our situation. And we'd, you know, get paid for having that loan. And that could not have been more wrong because, you know, one year of interest only turned into three years of interest only turned into five years of interest only and 5% rates turned into 3% rates. And the way these yield maintenance or defeasance prepayment penalties work is it's a, it's a formula based on how much time is left to maturity. And if I kind of your, your note rate compared to current market interest rates. So if you're the, the, your rates higher than what the current market interest rates, your prepay goes up. So we've had, you know, several deals that we've had to sell on a loan assumption and got a lower purchase price due to that, or we just ate a bunch in, in uh, prepayment penalties. So literally to the tunes of tens of millions of dollars um, over the years. And in spite of all that, we still have done really well. So I think maybe being a little bit more intentional and kind of matching your uh, business plan and your loan maturity and not try to get too cute about trying to see if this loan would be a little bit more accretive. You know, I mean, especially when you're starting out, you know, I've learned that one of my, one of the guys I really like a lot in the business told me once that, you know, well, you own apartments in dog years, you know, every year you own an apartment, it feels like seven, you know, uh, and the older and smaller, the apartment building, the more true that statement is. So when people get in, they get all excited and they go, you know, getting out of single family and they go buy their first 40 or 50 unit deal. They feel like this is, this is great. I want to own this thing forever. Well, the reality is, is, you know, usually one or two things are going to happen to you. Either you get in the business and you absolutely hate it and you, this sucks. You can't wait to get out of it. You can't wait to sell this deal and move on. Or you get in it and you absolutely love it and you can't wait to sell the small deal to go buy a bigger deal and continue to trade up. But either way, those like 50 unit deals, those first deals that you do are kind of startup properties and most people tend to be in those for, you know, a relatively short period of time, two to three years. So if you have a big prepayment penalty associated with that, that, that tends to be a mistake because it limits your flexibility and your, and your exit on the deal. And I'm sure, you know, you know, many, many people have made that same mistake I made. So that's probably the biggest, the biggest single mistake that we made, uh, you know, repeatedly. And fortunately we learned, learned our lesson a few years ago and we don't do that anymore. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I deal with that quite a lot. I have a lot of assumable loans come come our way that we're looking at, and you just can't make them work in today's environment. The 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 bidding's too competitive, and your your the funding sources that you have now are 
much different. So our first deal, actually, we bought with a, with a prepayment penalty on it. We structured it more creatively than I think others did. That's what made it, that's kind of one of the things that allowed us to, uh, to get the deal actually. So, and you don't, so you don't use private equity in yours, in your, in your business. You, all yours is funded through syndication. Yeah, we have not taken private equity to do a deal. We did uh, recapitalize one deal last year. We took some pref- preferred equity, but that was a really small group behind it. But yeah, generally speaking, you know, we just we go bang it out a hundred thousand at a time. You know, our average check is probably a hundred and fifty or hundred sixty thousand is our average <laughs> investor. You know, the people that are new to us tend to invest a minimum. If you've been with us a few years, you tend to invest more than that. So we probably average out around one hundred and fifty or. 160,000 per per investor something like that. That's amazing that you build such a business with with that level of investment not, and not be not having to take, you know, other private private money, so that's really good. And you know, that's one thing when I look at some of my competitors that have gone a little faster than me, they've all generally gone the private equity route and uh, you know, it's a little easier to scale quicker, but uh, you know, we've uh, been fortunate enough to the, with our structure it's always been pretty similar, pretty flat, just a simple 80-20 deal, no no preferred return where, you know, if you take private equity money, you have to pay that PREF. So, you know, you, you that that's, you know, something that's been important to us to try to avoid paying, you know, preferred return. So we, you know, that's like I said, nothing in this world's free. So to, to avoid paying a preferred return, I got to do 1700K once. So kind of, you know, you pay for it a little bit with some administrative work or you pay for it with, with money. So one of the two ways. Right, exactly. Well, so I ask everybody on the show kind of, you know, the name of the show is Next Little American Dream. So I always ask everybody kind of what is your American dream and, and uh, what are you doing to kind of, I guess you've already explained what you've done to achieve it, but what is it, the, what does the American dream mean to you? You know, just kind of looking back that, uh, you know, certainly I, I grew up in, a, you know, with everything I really needed. I mean, I didn't grow up poor, but, you know, we certainly weren't rich. You know, my father grew up on a farm and moved to Texas before my sister and I were born and, you know, worked, you know, still, still working. He's on 73 or four years old and he still kind of works part-time. Hopefully he'll retire one day, fixing appliances for a living. So blue collar. And then mother was a, was a school secretary. And, you know, so we certainly had what we needed, but we weren't rich. And we, you know, I don't think I got on an airplane, but maybe one time before I turned 18, we always drove everywhere we went. So I, you know, didn't grow up with this, with this type of I didn't have a, fi- a rich father that could teach me how to do private equity deals and invest in real estate. And I certainly didn't have a lot of money to, to do it. But today's day and age in America, you certainly still have the opportunity to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and go out and achieve stuff. If you have the, the drive and determination and the stones to go out and take a little bit of risk. And that's kind of what I had to learn. I was in my kind of mid thirties before I bought my, you know, kind of early to mid thirties before I bought my first investment piece, uh, piece of investment real estate, which in the grand scheme of things is pretty young compared to a lot of people, but you know, you see some other people that started even earlier. So I think it's still possible, still, still achievable. I mean, I think the system is uh, set up. There's a set of rules. I think if you can understand the tax code, understand how banks work, understand how uh, to raise private money, you can certainly get out and do large scale commercial real estate deals like I do and like you do, you know, or you could have a buddy who started out and owns, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 different Jimmy John's franchises. And he kind of started out and just kind of started with one, paid it off and kind of grew and just kept reinvesting into the, into his company. So, you know, there's different ways of, if you put your mind to it, willing to take a little bit of risk and work, work pretty hard. You know, this is a, a pretty uh, wonderful environment to go out and, and achieve a lot of things. And, you know, one thing I've kind of learned in this business, it's, it's an exponential business in a, in a lot of ways, what I do. And I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there just kind of success. You start out, you work, put your head down, you work, you work, you work, and 
you do pretty well, but then, you know, 10 years from now, all this, all these relationships, all these meetings, all this work, all this goodwill that I had, all these events I went to, all these things I did 10 years ago, you know, you never know what's going to compound upon itself and 10 years later, make it a little easier for me to buy this deal or raise this money or do whatever I need to do. So it's kind of an exponential business. And, you know, I said, we're going from $4 million deal to $105 million deal or $110 million deal in a matter of eight or nine years is pretty, pretty unbelievable. So, you know, I think just consistency, hard work, taking the opportunity, taking a little bit of smart calculated risk along the way. I think you can achieve a lot of things. And that's kind of what the American dream really has been for, for us. And now if I don't want to do anything, I, I, I try not to do things I, I don't want to do anymore. I, I still achieve that all the time. I still do a lot of stuff I don't want to do, but, you know, getting, getting closer and closer to getting all the kind of the stuff off my plate. I don't want to do focus on traveling and spend time with the family and, you know, really the things that excite me anymore in the business. If it doesn't excite me, I, I don't really want to do it anymore. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, tell the people kind of how they can reach out to you if they want to invest with you, if they want to, like, you, you, you were telling me earlier, you do the old capital podcast. So yep. what's the kind of the best place to connect with Michael Becker? Yeah, I'll give you two two resources. As you mentioned, I'm the co-host of the Old Capital Real Estate Investing Podcast. I've been doing that with Paul Peoples for, God, seven or eight years now, I guess, at this point. So you find us on iTunes or uh, you know Spotify or probably anywhere you hear my voice right now. If you just type in Old Capital, you'll, you'll find our podcast. Or my company that I run is a company called SPI Advisory. So you just go to our website, which is www.spiadvisory.com. It's SPI, like spyadvisory.com. There's a whole bunch of information in our portfolio, uh, information on what we do. There's a contact us form on there as well if you want to get added into our database and see uh, future opportunities. Yeah, awesome. Well, Michael, I really appreciate you coming on the show. We've talked a few, a couple times at uh, dinner parties and things like that. So I finally got you to, to come on and I appreciate yeah. it. I appreciate you giving us the time. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. We'll see you at the next one. All right, bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Next Level American Dream. If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, want to contact the team directly, or are interested in passively investing and being a part of our deal room, head over to our website at www.thompsonmultifamilygroup.com. Before you go, please leave a review. Your comments help us create more episodes for you to enjoy.